This is a heavy text this morning. And so we will ask God, who brings us an eternal weight of glory, to bring that glory to shine in the darkness of the text in this sinful world. So let's pray, knowing that God does that. He's the God who raised the dead and who brings us to new life by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead. Let's pray. We thank you for your word, O oh God. We thank you for our creation, our preservation, and all the blessings of this life. But above all, for your redemption of the world and your immeasurable love in your son, Jesus Christ. And so today, as we are distracted, disappointed, lonely, afraid, hurt, cast out, help us to be drawn near to the one who was rejected that we might be accepted. The Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll be in Genesis chapter 29, starting at verse 15 today. So I invite you to turn there. I think it's on page 23 of your Pew Bible. Yeah, it's page 23. As a father of a young daughter, the topic of today's text really haunted me this week. When you, when you prepare to preach a sermon, of course, you're just sitting in the text and analyzing the text and dwelling in the Bible, and the text starts to address you and to confront you. And it was not lost to me that Friday night we had at this church a wonderful father-daughter dance. Many of you were probably there. It was wonderful. It was a 50s theme, and all the fathers were there with their daughters, and we were having fun. And you just look at families, but also fathers, zealous to protect and raise their children, their daughters, in the knowledge and instruction of the Lord, knowing the evils of this world all around us. Now, I don't typically have nightmares, but I actually did this week. And it clearly emerged from the contents of Genesis 29 and 30 and just sitting in it. And in my dream, I was in a forest and I was protecting my daughter. My daughter is eight years old. She's wearing a little white vest. And I'm protecting her and these gangs of violent thugs were chasing us through the forest. I don't know where we were, but we were being chased. And most of the dream, of course, in that kind of a dream, what happens? Are you running at the normal pace? No, you're slow. You're running as slow as can be. And you're shouting, just shouting, stay away from my daughter. This is my daughter. But every line seemed to drag on through the slowness of what felt like my total inability to protect her. That at any moment she could be struck. That at any moment she could be stolen from me. It was a tough dream, and it was the kind of dream that I woke up the next day, and throughout the whole day, I just kept saying to my wife, that dream, that dream, and she says, it's just a dream, you know, but I couldn't kick it. Have you ever had that experience? Where it fundamentally changes your whole day. It was very disturbing. 
There was a silver lining, though, and I will mention it because this is a heavy text, so we do need a bit of that. A few days later, as I was recalling the dream, and I was, I was saying, Zoe, actually, you were in my dream the other night. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe I shouldn't have told her it. I was just, now, what was it? What was it? Oh, great. Oh, man, think before you speak, John. And I remembered, and I was describing to her, and she was looking at me like, you are weird. That as these projectiles are being fired at us, and I'm zealously protecting her, and in this anxious, panicked state, I wasn't deflecting anything with a shield or with a weapon, but with a 1968 reissue Fender Stratocaster guitar. (laughs) Saved by the power of rock and roll. Now, remembering that aspect of the dream made the dream a lot less terrifying, but not this passage. And yet, underneath the heartache, the deception, the depravity that we see in this text, the very roots of redemption, roots that powerfully point us to the fulfillment of every unmet longing of every human soul in the person of Jesus Christ. And so as we approach the text this morning, we're going to look at it in three parts. First, we'll look just at verse 15. And what we'll see is how the wages of Jacob function to fulfill the reward that was promised to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 15. The wages are the reward. And we'll say, what's that reward? Next, in verses 17 and following, we'll look at how Weakness, this theme of weakness that comes up. Did you hear that? She has weak eyes. What does that mean? Weakness tells us more than only something about Leah's eyes. It actually reveals to us the very power and essence of the gospel. And then finally, we'll see in the end, in verse 35. Do you hear how things change there? We'll read it again when we get there. We'll find how only the weak eyes, only the weak eyes, are the ones that can clearly see the blessing of God. Only through Leah's eyes is the blessing rightly identified as God's presence in providence working in her in the midst of all these horrible injustices and unkindnesses done to her. So let's turn to verse 15 in the text and let's begin there. The Bible says, In verse 15, then Jacob said, then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now on the surface, within the whole context of the passage, well, we can see what is going on here. Wages is a sort of commercial terminology being used in an ancient context where Jacob is working for Laban, but also, on the other hand, paying the bride price for his daughter, who he thinks is going to be Rachel at first. That's the surface level of the text. But with Hebrew Scripture, there's always something going on underneath, isn't there, with the Bible. The original hearers, when they heard wages, that word in the original language is the same word translated reward back in Genesis 15, verse 1. So what does it say about reward in 15, verse 1? It's the same word, but a different rendering. Here's what it says. God says to Abraham, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward 
shall be very great. Wage here in Genesis 29 and reward in Genesis 15 are focused on the same thing at their essence. On the surface, it's about how the marriage is going to begin. Underneath, it's about nothing less than the promise to Abraham that he would become a father of a multitude of nations and that through him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. Universal in its significance and scope through this one people to be fulfilled, of course, in Israel in person. Jesus Christ, who fulfills all that Israel was meant to be. And I mention this just because I think it's important to remember that what we're looking at here is just not only a commercial transaction, but the blessing going through Jacob. In fact, what Sam preached last week, Isaac had promised in Genesis 28, what, that when Jacob went to Padan Aram, he would marry one of the daughters of Laban, and he said, may the blessing of Abraham go with you. And that is what is happening here. Still, the text may raise questions. It should raise questions because it describes a culture and way of being that is totally foreign. And if you read 29 and 30, in some ways abhorrent to the contemporary reader. So what are we looking at here? One principle I want to look at before we move on to the next point. When we find things in the Old Testament, some people go, well, this is why I don't like the Old Testament. I just stick with the New. And you, you can't do that. You can't have the New without the Old. It makes no sense. What's going on? Well, in the Old Testament, we see many, many, many cultural things that the Bible describes, but that the Bible does not prescribe. In this text, we're going to see wages for a daughter. We're going to see an ancient bride price being paid. We're going to see Jacob eventually having four wives. Friends, these are all descriptive aspects of a fallen culture, not something that the Bible is prescribing as behaviors for today. Maybe that seems obvious to you, but trust me, in some biblical scholarship, people will say, well, God had different views of marriage at different times. Legitimate biblical scholars, liberal ones, will say that. And that is let me just say very clearly, not what is going on in Holy Scripture. No, the point is that the wage, the reward, the blessing of God enters into imperfect circumstances and through those circumstances brings redemption. God does not stay up in heaven away from our brokenness and say, I can't meddle down there in those things. He comes into the brokenness, he runs into the brokenness, and he heals it. He doesn't give us an advertisement for archaic ancient ways of living. We don't have to feel like we have to defend those as prescriptive things from the Lord, okay? So the wages of Abraham. But it's also about the weakness of Leah. What is going on with that? Did you see that in verses 16 through 17? Strange, curious, odd, uh, descriptive words here. As the story continues to unfold, we learn in verses 16 and 17 that Laban had two daughters. The older daughter, Leah, is said to have weak eyes, while the younger daughter, Rachel, is said to be beautiful in form and appearance. What's going on here? Well, again, it's the Hebrew Bible. 
It is loaded with meaning and significance. It's not easy to read. On the surface, what it's really saying is, essentially, Jacob is attracted to Rachel, right? Now, on the surface of it, there's nothing wrong with that. It's human nature to be attracted to one person or another. And do note that this is Moses saying this. This is not Jacob making an announcement, right? This is Moses kind of airing the dirty laundry of antiquity for us now to, to, to read about and consider. But underneath the surface, I want to suggest that there's something going on that's more significant, that's more significant to us today in our walk as Christians, in our understanding of how this story fits within the whole matrix of Holy Scripture. Because you understand, friends, we read the Bible in its original context, but also in its canonical context. The author of Holy Scripture in Genesis is Moses, but who's the author under the author? God. And he holds it all together and makes it cohere in a message that brings redemption. It's underneath the surface, if we look at the Greek translation especially of this, people go, oh, here we go, ex-seminary professor. He's going to start talking. Maybe he'll even say the Greek word. Okay. It's asthenes. Everyone is like, yes. It's in the study notes, don't worry. You can bring those to your small groups. Why do we look at the Greek? To sound smart and important? No, no, no. The reason we mention the Greek is because what was the version of the Old Testament that most of the Jews who were spread around the empire could read? The Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. And sometimes when the Hebrew is unclear, because the Hebrew just means weak or soft. It's like, okay. Maybe if we look at the Greek, we can understand how the early church and the Jews of that time would have understood it. So what does the word in Greek mean? It means ineffectual, limited in capacity. Suffering, suffering from a debilitating illness. See, that's quite a different spread of meaning. And it indicates to me that apart from whatever Jacob's preferences of physical appearance or eyes, or, or one guy said, her eyes didn't have enough sparkle. It's like, what does that even mean? You know? I mean and this is a major commentator. It's like, okay, you're, you're really reaching there. You know, that there's probably some sort of visual impairment going on because the word for weakness means sort of an affliction, an affliction of the body or the soul. What's more and pertinent to us, you, because you should then stop and say, what does that have to do with me today in 2024? All that fine kind of adjusting of the Greek and Hebrew, what on earth does that have to do with me? It's a good thing, by the way, if you're teaching the Bible, to ask people who don't teach the Bible, because they will say that directly to you when you say stuff like that. I want to suggest this, that underneath Leah's weakness is a powerful gospel point, namely this, that God throughout all of Holy Scripture always powerfully works through the things that appear to everyone else to be weak. Consider what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, verse 2. Christ was crucified in weakness, the same word, but he lives by the power of God. Paul says, we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live by the power of God. Later, Paul says it even more profoundly. He says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. It's not just that Leah was deemed less attractive than Rachel. It's that our God works through weakness to shame the strong and to lift up the lowly. The wages of the blessing of Abraham going through this imperfect situation, the weakness of one who eventually will be the only one in the story who will be able to clearly see. It's the one that's said to have weak eyes that can clearly see in verse 35. I mean, so much happens in verse 16 through 30, so we'll take the next 45 minutes and go through that, <laughs> verse by verse. I would love to do that with you, but you would not love me to do that. Let's be honest. Some of you might. It's a very small number. So, <laughs> so much happens in verses 16 through 30. I mean, you've got this despicable act, despicable that occurs when Laban deceives Jacob the deceiver. He tricks him in this horrible way into consummating a marriage with Leah rather than Rachel. And then the text takes us through this ironic, poetic justice when Laban defends the trickery. Did you see what he said? He said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. What are we thinking when we hear that based on what Sam has been preaching the past couple weeks? that the deceiver has been deceived, that the younger who stole the birthright and the blessing from the older has now had that come back on him. You automatically hearken back to that. But this isn't the key theme even that I see as the most pertinent thing to look at for us. In these verses, especially verses 18 through 31, you have this theme of love and hate. Did you hear that? Those are strong words. When you hear that Leah was hated, you should feel cut to the heart. You should feel cut to the heart. I mean, what do we hear? We hear Rachel was loved, verse 18, verse 20, verse 30. But what? Leah was hated, verse 31 and 33. And in contemporary English, of course, when we hear love and hate, we think, okay, well, Jacob, Jacob was smitten with Rachel but he, you know, hate it. he really, really, really dislikes Leah or something like this. But that's not what the ancient context means by the use of these words at all. That's what we bring to the emotional way that we think of these words. Really what love means in Genesis is not emotion so much as being inclined to one. Being inclined to one. And what does hate mean? Being disinclined. The covenant goes through Jacob, and God is disinclined through Esau. Jacob chooses Rachel, and he rejects Leah. It's still harsh, but it doesn't have this, this aspect of hatred to it. And notice what Leah's impulse is. And it would be easy, by the way, to say, oh, you know, she should, if she was really godly, she would know that God's going to work all things for good according to his purposes. 
Oh, give me a break, man. It is hard to be human and live in the brokenness of this world, especially when you're rejected, especially when you're abandoned, and the love that your husband should show to you or your spouse should show to you is withheld. In verse 32, after she bears Reuben, she says, now my husband will love me. Now my husband will love me. Doesn't that that cut you to the heart? And then in 34, she gives birth to Levi. And she says, now this time my husband will be attracted to me, attached to me. And then in verse 35, though, something profound happens. The one who is said to have weak eyes sees for the first time clearly. We don't have the impassioned eyes of Jacob, the impetuous actions of Jacob. We have the clear eyes of the one who is said to be weak. What does Leah say in verse 35? She says something beautiful. She says, the scripture says, she conceived again and bore a son. And what did she say? This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Who comes from the line of Judah? Jesus. Jesus comes from, it's almost like she's in this narrow, legitimate but narrow human lens of seeing and then all of a sudden this wide angle lens comes in and no one except God Almighty himself is there and she recognizes what is happening and just for that moment, she'll go on to doubt again, but just for that moment, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. So often in our experiences, the legitimate cares and, and, and the legitimate longings of everyday life, they kind of crowd out our ability to see that wide-angle lens that we get through Scripture and sacrament, through fellowship and participation in Christ's body and the mysteries of the faith. They, they kind of crowd out what's always there. It's always there. But they crowd it out, and all we can see and do is commiserate with our misery, and those who share it with us. Reminds me of a bit of what I experienced playing hide-and-seek recently. Now, hide-and-seek, it's different. When you play with little kids, is it, are you really hiding and seeking? <laughs> they're sticking out of the slide when they're two or three or four years old. I don't think you'll find me. And you have to walk around and go, oh, I don't know where they are. Oh, this is so hard. And then, finally, after a while, and they go, oh, I hit so good, didn't I, Daddy? And you go, yes, you did, darling. But when they get older, right, all bets are off. All bets. I don't care. I was playing Zoe in Battleship the other day, and I totally just won. It's good for her. That's a learning experience. She did cry, though. Um, I felt it down here. Get the violins back up. Um, when they get older, though, kind of, you really want to win. You really want to play hide-and-seek, right? And the point of hide-and-seek is not to be found. So I thought, what would be really cool? We were down at this Lubber Run Park. You know that place? Um, and there's, like, a park across the street from there, and there's all these picnic tables. It's a big play area, and then there's a field, and there's all these picnic tables kind of on, in the line of sight, but they're just a little bit out of focus. So I thought, I'm going to try an experiment, a social experiment. I went and stood on that table, in the goofiest position and most obvious position that I could. And I just went, and I stood there. And then they didn't see me. They kept looking, where is he? 
And they weren't humoring me. They really couldn't see me. And then I started going like that. And they still didn't see me. So I started doing the whoop, whoop, and you know, looking around. And finally, they saw me. And it was really interesting to me because I was there the whole time. And what did they do when they saw me? They weren't mad. They, were, they thought it was so cool. They were like, oh, Dad, oh, there you are. Right? We see you. They saw the wide screen picture into the narrow frame, into the narrow frame of the human longing cuts that wide-angle view of God's providence for Leah. What Jacob called, did God call her weak? What Jacob reckoned to be weak, that's the one that God has made strong. The one that Jacob rejected is the one that God elected. The hated one becomes the beloved one. And if only for a moment, Leah sees and Leah praises the Lord. And it reminds me of another woman who was in a similar situation, vulnerable, alone, many, many years later, coming to find out that she'd bear a boy by the power of the Holy Spirit who comes in the line of the longing Leah. And she said, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because I'm so strong. No, 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 she said, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And behold, all generations will call me blessed, for the Almighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. I can't say hallelujah because it's Lent. Whoops. Oops. I am Protestant. All right. Friends, I can see myself in Jacob sometimes. Not in his particular sins, but in a certain familiarity with his fallenness. Impetuous, impassioned, inebriated by the seduction and distraction of daily life. That's Jacob. Sometimes that's me. Might it also be you? Not looking down on Jacob, but looking through Jacob and the shock of realizing some of that stuff is playing out in our own souls. And we need to take it to the cross in repentance. But yet, I have to say, friends, that even more than Jacob's fallenness, I have a familiarity with Leah's longings. And I have a feeling that I'm not alone. Leah, the weak. Leah, the hated. Leah, the unloved. Leah, the rejected. Leah, the one who gets left out, passed over, left behind. Maybe these titles resonate with you right now in this season. Maybe they've been things that you resonate with for your whole life. And for whatever reason, they feel like home, lost in the unmet longings of Leah. Someone you deeply care for has turned their back on you. Betrayal is a fresh wound. For years, you've sought to hear from a parent or a partner or your peers. You are loved. You belong. You matter. I am for you. I will never be against you. And so often these longings were met not even with the cold charity of Jacob, but with a piercing sting of silence. Neglect, indifference. Friends, the church is not a place where the strong gather to invite the weak in so that they can look at us and become strong like us. No, no, no. 
The church is the place where the weak gather to invite more to the table of the same. When we are weak, then we are strong. In fact, if you feel strong apart from Christ, remember what Psalm 33 said. I'll read it to you if you forget. Nicholas read it for us this morning. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. By its might, it cannot save. Friends, you cannot stand in the strong blessing of Jacob unless you first enter through the weakness of Leah. Her weakness is our weakness. And it is made strong in Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul understood this. He had a thorn in his side, an obstacle in his life that caused him to not be able to live in the abundance that he wanted to live in physically, perhaps. But what did God say to Paul? He made Paul to understand, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And the weakness of Leah, of course, comes to fruition not primarily in us, first and foremost, but primarily in Jesus Christ. We go from Leah the weak to Jesus the weak, Jesus the rejected, Jesus the cast off, the forsaken, the abandoned, broken for us that we may be made whole in him, accepted, forgiven, loved, called in. If you didn't hear it from a parent, you should have, and my heart breaks that that is our inheritance, some of us. And if you didn't hear it from friends or from a spouse, I want to tell you today, do not listen to the false pronouncements of the deceiver Jacob over your life. You are weak. You are rejected. You are unloved. Instead, listen to the still, small, true voice of Jesus Christ that says you are loved you are forgiven. You are mine. I will never turn my back on you. Everything that is mine is yours. I have paid it all for you. You may find yourself flying under the banner of Leah, patron saint of the lonely, the forgotten, the afflicted, the forsaken. I often do. Commiserate there when you must but then flee to Christ and cling to the greater banner that he carries of the lineage of Leah, of the tribe of Judah. Because in Leah we find our common affliction, but in Christ the unmet longings of every human heart will be eternally fulfilled. Thanks be to God for Jesus and his church. It is our inheritance and it's what God calls us to bring to the whole world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we don't deserve you. And, and there's so much loneliness in the world. There's so much brokenness and hurt. Even the ones we want to protect, we recognize we don't have nearly the power and strength that we need to do that. But you call us through weakness to become strong. Now this Lent, help us to pray into that, to read scripture, to fast, to flee to the cross and cling to it, knowing that in him we have everlasting life.
and that our joy will be made complete. That is your promise to us, and we entrust ourselves to you today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.